Welcome to the Scholars and Storytellers podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers at UCLA. This episode, recorded on March 16th, 2021, is titled The Social Impact of Social Media. How can we support youth in the digital age? With Dr. Candice Odgers, Jeff Orlowski, and Larissa Rhodes, moderated by Dr. Yalda T. Ools. Dr. Candice Odgers is a professor of psychological science and informatics at the University of California, Irvine, and an expert on adolescent mental health and child development in the digital age. Jeff Orlowski is the founder of Exposure Labs and the director, producer, and cinematographer of The Social Dilemma and the award-winning films Chasing Coral and Chasing Ice. Larissa Rhodes is a filmmaker and the head of creative development at Exposure Labs and a producer of The Social Dilemma, Chasing Coral, and Chasing Ice. Our moderator, Dr. Yalda T. Ools, is the founder and executive director of the Center for Scholars and Storytellers, author of Media Moms and Digital Dads, and a former movie executive. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy. Hi, welcome. We are so excited to have this incredible panel. Um, leaders in documentary filmmaking, social impact, and in academia, speaking about the movie, the documentary Social Dilemma, um, and how um, media and social media impact uh, young people. I'm Yelda Ools. I am the founding director of the Center for Scholars and Storytellers. We're based in the psychology department at UCLA. And our mission is to bridge the gap between scholars and storytellers to support positive youth development. I am really pleased to first introduce Dr. Candice Odgers. She's a professor of psychological science and informatics at the University of California, Irvine. And she's also an expert on adolescent mental health and child development in the digital age. Welcome, Candice. <laughs> Hi, Elda. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I am next pleased to introduce uh, Je Jeff Orlowski. He is the director, producer, and cinematographer of the award-winning films Chasing Coral and Chasing Ice. He founded Exposure Labs, an incredible social impact organization. It's a production company dedicated to impact through film. His latest film, The Social Dilemma, had its world premiere at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival and was a top 10 movie on Netflix for a very, very long time. Uh, welcome, Jeff. Yes, thank you so much, Elda. And last but not least, we have Larissa Rhodes. She's a filmmaker and the head of creative development at Exposure Labs, where she develops projects that are environmentally and socially minded. Recently, she produced the Sundance, Peabody, and Emmy Award uh, winning film, Chasing Coral. And she previously worked on the M Emmy Award winning documentary, Chasing Ice. The Social Dilemma is her latest producing project. Uh, welcome, Larissa. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really, really excited to put together this all-star panel. Um, and I also want to thank Jenna Signorelli and Annie Myers, who are behind the scenes from the center for helping put this all together. So let's just kick it off. I'm going to start with Jeff and Larissa. Um, and either of you can answer. Um, I hope you'll play off of each other. What did you hope would be the social impact of this movie? And who is the primary audience? Was it, it clearly, you know, resonated with young people, I'm assuming maybe all ages, you may know what ages Netflix may have told you, but were you also hoping to influence policy people? What were you hoping? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Larissa, I'm happy to jump in and then pass yeah. it over to you okay. if that works. Um, 
I kind of joke sometimes that I made this movie hoping that my mom would watch it. And that was just like an interesting filter and rubric for me. Um, and I, I look at that as a translation around how do you make something accessible to broad audiences and to the general public? When we first started working on this, it was very easy for us to fall into like the tech bubble and talking deep around algorithms and machine learning and, and complicated concepts that um, I think Larissa and I and our whole team had to wrap our head around. But we knew that if we made something just for the tech ML AI crowd, it would not have it would not have gone wide and it would not have hit um, the conversation and elevated the conversation to the scale that we thought we needed to. So I think one of the challenges that we faced was how do we make these complicated concepts as accessible to parents, to legislators, to students? Um, and one of the things that I feel most proud about is that we've seen really, really strong response from all of those different groups. We've had countless students and teachers and um, youth groups reach out to us about the film. Likewise, we've had countless politicians reach us out to us about the film. And so, I mean, it's sort of a cop-out answer to say we were trying to make it for everybody, but I, I think genuinely that was one of the, the thoughts in mind. Um, we envisioned this as, you know, what's the inconvenient truth for technology in 2020? Um, and how do we bring something to the table that can really sort of like lay out a landscape for lots of different people to engage with? Yeah, I would also add too that when we were learning about the issue, we started to recognize that this was an underlying, like a foundational issue that was really affecting a lot of other issues that we cared about. Um, you know, name the issue that you care about when you perform, you know, a Google search, for example, the results that you get back aren't necessarily what you would consider to be a fact. Uh, so I think for us, it was really trying to understand how, how embedded are these issues in the design? And when you think about the design, that, that design affects everybody and the intentions behind the design, I think, were what was most interesting and illuminating for us to expose uh, and recognizing that those intentions affect all the people that use this technology around the world. You know, that's what we believe in in the center that um, creating media for mass audiences is a really great way to have impact and, and yeah, absolutely. in a meaningful way. And then ultimately, if you get the mass audience, hopefully policy members and others that need to hear, hear about it will. So on the site, on the website, you call out three dilemmas, um, which I'm going to talk about a little bit. One is mental health. One is democracy, and the last is discrimination. Candace, Dr. Rogers, has extensively studied and reviewed the issues around mental health, social media, and young people, and she really is one of the foremost experts. So, Candace, I'd love you to talk a little bit around what the research says about whether social media causes, and you, you guys notice I'm saying causes, uh, mental health issues, and I know what you'll probably say, but also, what do we know? What do we not know? What do we still need to study? Yeah, thanks, Yelda, and thanks for this great film. I'm really happy that the conversation has started because we've been trying, working with kids to direct the conversation to understand these settings where they now spend, you know, the majority of their day, um, even before COVID hit, and to think about that seriously in terms of what are the opportunities and risks. We've been following young people for a long time, so we work mostly with adolescents, and we actually follow them on their mobile devices around their schools and neighborhoods and try and understand kind of their experiences in daily life and how the technology they're using impacts them, you know, things like sleep and mental health. And one of the most surprising things we've found and that we found reviewing the results of others is that the links are really small. They're really tiny in terms of mental health connections. They're most likely 
not there. And when they are there, they're kind of in small directions and positive and negative ways. But there's a very strong negative around this idea that social media causes mental health problems in kids. And so that's been the space we've been trying to reconcile is why this belief is, you know, kind of so strong among adults and among teens themselves, this, this narrative, whereas the evidence, and maybe it's the case that the evidence isn't strong enough, but it doesn't seem to support that narrative. So it's in, in that gap of kind of what's, what's happening in, in this space. Well, we know that sleep is critical for mental health and physical health, and there is a fair amount of evidence around that. What is the evidence around using media and sleep. And if that, you know, maybe that's the underlying cause, or maybe there are other underlying causes that maybe fuel this narrative. Yeah. And so people are concerned that, you know, kids are up late at night and kind of losing sleep over social media. And there's some evidence to support that. And again, what you tend to find now is that that fear might be overblown. And I know I always sound, whenever I talk to an audience, they say, oh, this is the pro technology researcher, but I'm not, I'm really, I'm pro kids and I'm pro evidence. So I just go in and try and look at why the narratives are mismatched with it. I think the place where it really resonated with the social dilemma is that we've been saying people are screaming about mental health and you know social media and causing mental health. And that's really not what we should be taking up the energy in the room. But the other issues that you guys focused on in that documentary, which was kind of optimizing algorithms for profit and time on screen of not taking seriously like how these settings are impacting youth or that youth are the main people on many of these platforms, those and equity issues around kind of how opportunities We're are structured. Yeah. Yeah. Those, sorry. Those are the big, big, the big kind of things. Whereas the mental health issues, um, the evidence doesn't seem to align quite as strongly. Yeah. Great. I'm going to, yeah, definitely get to democracy and discrimination, which are <laughs> really important issues that the film talks about and, you know, other people have been talking about. How has COVID impacted all of your thinking around this? I mean, I know Jeff and Larissa, when you filmed this, we were in person, you know, people were in person, everybody, you know, you filmed it. And then all of a sudden the world changed and we, we are all, un, you know, have to use technology to communicate. How's it changed your thinking, Jeff and Larissa, and, and you too, Candace? Well, first of all, I'd love to offline, Candace, on seeing uh, the latest research and everything that you've been uh, exploring. So um, we'd love to circle back on that. I think a couple thoughts on the COVID front. Uh, I, I just at a personal level, when I was on social media, um, I spent a lot of time doom scrolling. That was kind of like my pastime of choice, I think. Uh, and I've, I've stopped using all social media in the making of this film and just kind of felt my own personal shifts and experience that kind of migrated me away from just like the endless negative content that I was seeing and was being algorithmically reinforced back to me. For me personally, to not have been on social media during COVID, I found like, I think in my own experience, just a different mental state than I think a lot of my friends and peers were uh, as just the tumultuousness of last year just kind of was constantly being reflected back in different ways. So, I mean, there, it's interesting in that like because of COVID, we're spending so much more time on our devices and on social media. And yet personally, I, I think for me personally, at least, I found the greatest connection with my friends and family, not through those social media platforms. And Candace, to echo what you were saying earlier, this is not an anti-technology mindset for me. I love technology. We're using great tech right now to have this conversation. But this as a um, conversation through technology is very different in my mind than what an algorithmic feed is optimizing for and just trying to engage, right? I think the the fundamental thing that, that uh, I keep coming back to is that the incentives for big social companies, the incentives for how they make money 
are incentives that don't have the user's best interest at heart. Like it's not trying to figure out how is a teenage kid going to like become the most fulfilled version of themselves. It is just what's going to get them to come back and keep looking on the platform. And I think the big thing is like the answer to that algorithmic question is different for all of us. The thing that will keep me coming back to my newsfeed of choice is different than the thing that that works on each and every one of us here um, and works on every individual in a different way. So for me, I, the, the COVID, COVID has like sort of amplified the dilemma even more in that we're in a period of time where people are so hungry for human connection and we go to these platforms thinking that we're going to get human connection, even though in my mind, um, as one of our interview subjects said, but it didn't work into the film, that these platforms offer connectivity and not real connection. And how do we really use technology to offer real human to human connection as I think we are also craving and desirous of. I would also add, I, I'm curious, uh, Candace, the latest research as well. I, I know Yalda was very careful to use the word cause. Uh, causation, we all know, is different than correlation. And I think one of the subjects uh, also said, and this didn't make it into the film, but I think, or maybe it is in the film, Jeff, that we're one, running one of the largest psychological experiments um, using social media on humanity without a control group. Uh, and that, I think, is the question mark and is the concern. And I think there's a need for more science and more data for us to better understand how this technology is affecting us. So yeah, very eager to, to learn more about that. And I, I am with Jeff. I stopped using social media during the making of this film and find that uh, my my real connections uh, with my family friends have not suffered uh, at all. And if anything have improved. So that, that has been mine, but recognize that it's not for everyone, um, especially during this COVID time. Yeah, so I think we've been, so my answer will be more directed at children and kind of adolescents through the pandemic. And for them, many of them have gravitated to those platforms, some of them at younger ages than their parents would have been prepared to let them go there because they were missing that social connection. And whether that's gaming and having a Discord channel or, you know, being on FaceTime and just chatting, but it really is, um, I think it's different than the kind of doom scrolling that we do as adults and that young people have found these creative ways to extract some of the things that they've been missing and needed. But it's also, as both of you have mentioned, just highlighted how much that human connection is missing. And it's also difficult, you know, we talk about the online world, but much of what we do in the online world is connect and strengthen and, you know, relationships that we have offline. And so when those get shut down, it becomes kind of a different animal. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, I always, when I get parent talks and have in the past, I always quote this um, focus group kid who said, "My I'm, adults think I'm addicted to technology. I'm not addicted to technology. I'm addicted to my friends, which is, I think, the underlying drive for teens. And it's developmentally really important for them to connect with other teens. So if there's not a way, obviously face-to-face -face is, I believe, the best way to connect, to learn. But if it's not available, this this is certainly a great way to, for them to connect. And and I've been asked lately from in, in parent talks and also in uh, in the press, do you think What's, what's going to happen when COVID is done? Are they going to, now that they've all, like the gate was open, they've all been on this 24-7, what's going to happen? And I said, I think they're not going to care. Like they're going to want to be in person. They're going to throw these devices away and rush to be to each other with each other because that's what they really want. That's what we crave. If, if I can add to that, Yalda. Um, Absolutely. And that's why... Um, 
I, I'm personal. I use FaceTime all the time. I use Signal all the time, text messaging all the time. The, the ability to connect with friends and family, as you're pointing mm -hmm. to, is really, really valuable. I think mm -hmm. where I start to, um, I, I want to push on where is the technology best serving or not us or not is when we talk about the Snapchats and the Instagrams and the TikToks and the Facebooks and Twitters where they have a different incentive structure in mind. And the, the um, algorithmically machine learning driven optimization engines that are trying to figure out well, how do we get you to keep coming back? You know, mm -hmm. FaceTime isn't pinging me on an hourly basis to tell me to talk to my grandmother, um, right? Like I, I engage with my grandmother on a regular basis, but it's not like the algorithm is trying to like find every possible nodal connection. And I think that's where um, the, the perspectives that I've gathered in the making of the film is really trying to align on where are the incentives for the public or not. Um, there is this line that we use in the film, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And that is definitely a, a massive simplification of the story here. But I, I do find that there's something valuable in just using that as a, as a pressure tester. You pay for your phone, you pay for text messaging, you pay for FaceTime, like that's through that Apple software. You're paying for a Zoom account if you're engaging via Zoom. But where are the platforms that are worth hundreds of billions of dollars where we don't pay them with our money? but there's some other mechanism of extraction that's happening there. And so that's where uh, I just want to like point people's attention to think critically about like, when are they designed really for our best interest or not? Yeah. And I don't think you'll, you'll get, <laughs> you'll get any disagreement. I, I, you know, early on in my, my academic career, I, I pointed out that, you know, when the when their commercial interests behind the way that people communicate and in particularly teens, that's when we need to think about it. Um, yeah, so I'm going to go back to what Candace started thinking. So talking about um, and, and talk about democracy and discrimination. You, I know Candace, have been interested in bias and machine learning algorithms in terms of what um, young people see and experience online. What do you know about this topic? Yeah, so one of the reasons we've been trying to move the conversation away from kind of the fear on mental health is that there's these huge issues or huge differences in how children experience the online world and how the online world sees them, right? So if we just take the example, we look across kids who are growing up in low-income houses or higher-income houses, and the kids in low-income houses, we know they're online between 1.5 or 2 hours more per day. Um, their viewing looks very different. They're actually fed a different set of search, you know, search parameters or videos based not only on kind of their input, but also the input of other devices connected to them, maybe their zip code. And, you know, thinking about how, what we want children to see, especially from an early age in terms of representation online, you know, the algorithms, as you pointed out in the film, you know, we could, we could build those to optimize for something other than profit or time on screen. And this is a huge opportunity and that just hasn't been looked at the way that we look at the other settings where children spend the majority of their time. The response has been for social media companies in particular to pretend they're not there, to say that, you know, you have to be 13 years of age. But in our studies, you know, 60% of 10-year-olds have a social media account, 85% of 40. So it's, we know that's not true. Um, and so opening up that conversation and really highlighting the role that big tech has to play of kind of policing the playground um, and being a social safety net, especially right now. Hi, listeners. We hope that you're enjoying this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. The Center for Scholars and Storytellers is an organization dedicated to bridging the gap between scholars and storytellers to promote positive youth development. 
Are you interested in learning more about the other projects we are working on? Check out our website at scholarsandstorytellers.com and find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching Scholars and Storytellers. Now, back to the conversation. So just, just to transition on so we can get to questions. And um, we, we have questions from, um, I have a class called Digital Media and Human Development that I teach and everybody watched The Social Dilemma and many of my students um, sent in questions. Um, Jeff and Larissa, um, before we get to the questions, what's what's next for you? Um, well, I can jump into it and just uh, to piggyback off of what Candace was saying, there's there's another film too called Coded Bias, which speaks to some of the algorithmic bias for viewers out there who want to continue um, to learn more about that. It is um, not not just segregated to uh, algorithms in the way that they appear on um, social media platforms, for example. It, it really does um, evolve into how our policing is done, how our government is set up, um, how our you know recidivism and our criminal justice system um, is conducted. So um, I encourage people to watch that. But on our end, we have been mainly focusing on the outreach for this film. Um, we have a team that is really kind of focused on three main arms of the campaign. And maybe I'll pass it to Jeff uh, to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, yeah, thanks, Larissa. Um, and uh, to, to this question, as Larissa was saying, we're really just focused on how do we leverage this movie and this conversation and uh, just engage as much as we can. Um, so uh, the main work that we do falls under the arms of continuing public awareness and education, um, and then also engaging with youth and Gen Z in particular, and then uh, lastly, equipping policymakers and trying to help give policymakers a sense of uh, the perspectives that um, we've gathered and, uh, you know, pointing them to the experts in the field based on what the policymakers are most curious about. Um, and so that's been a big uh, commitment for our team, just keeping that conversation going. Okay, well, it sounds like we have an opportunity, maybe all of us, to to use the power of this film and to use the um, incredible research that Candace and other people have been doing to really focus on some of the um, the discrimination and the bias and the fundamental issues that when you have, and I always think about Jaron Lanier, who you have two people communicating and then you have a whole team of engineers, maybe Tristan said it, you know, listening to these two people communicating and that's different. So it's different than just the telephone, you know, and, and you know, that's the issue to, for me, for sure, that I think does need to be resolved in addition to not the polarization that I think the internet creates, but clearly it is allowed very extreme views to um, use these platforms to incite violence and other things, but that's an issue for another day. So um, I am going to start um, asking some of the questions and I will start um, with one for uh, Dr. Rogers and then we'll go to Jeff and Larissa. So um, Candice, this is from Diana. If we could have child psychologists make or manage social media, how much of a difference would that make for young users? And I can answer that question. My answer would be, they probably wouldn't use it because yes. it would be really boring. Exactly. Go ahead, <laughs> yeah, so this is, I mean, you need to find that place where the magic happens. So psychologists have a lot of evidence, a lot of interventions of what works and it's boring to kids and they don't do it. And, you know, the gamification, you know, in the online world, it draws them in. Um, and they love it. And so what, where do we go? Well, the best place is partnerships, right? Where you can kind of embed some of this, you know, not sneak it in. And you've been doing this for a long time in traditional children's media, y'all do with, with learning. I do say smuggle it in. <laughs> 
Um, but there's also opportunities. So I'll take, you know, adolescent mental health, for example. We know that like 80% of young people go online to seek out information and help for mental health problems. You know, can't we provide services, meet them where they are, provide it in a way that, you know, they they want to hear it or that is like engaging to them, bring them in as experts. I mean, there are ways to do this. Um, we haven't mobilized in a way uh, to make these spaces really creative and useful for kids. Um, and that requires some partnerships and neither tech companies or psychologists going out alone. Yeah, and I actually think that it, that in it, with respect to mental health, I mean, there, ha there have been studies, for example, that um, Vicki Rideout did a study where she studied people nationwide, teens, and she actually um, I looked at depressed populations of teens and most of them actually said that they needed the internet and they used it for connecting with others. They felt better after using it, it was self-report, but these vulnerable teens actually needed and looked up information. And why can't we put pressure on places like Snapchat and Instagram and all these other places to really work with researchers to help use, and TikTok, you know, they, they're creating all this content to actually, for those vulnerable teens, surface resources that um, have been proven to be effective. What do you guys, do you think that's possible, Jeff or Larissa? Yeah, I mean, I think it's tricky because you recognize, as Jeff pointed out earlier, that the fundamental business model is, is just not really aligned with humanity's best interests. And so getting the companies to offer their data to researchers um, or making it available, making your data portable to other um, platforms, those are things that I think are being asked of these platforms. And I think there's a real question as to whether or not they're willing to open up um, and, and make things more accessible to researchers um, for those purposes. And I think to your point, uh, it just, it feels like there have been so many cases or instances where um, people don't necessarily know or understand their own usage or repercussions of that usage. And so I think having more data, having more um, visibility or transparency into how these platforms are working and to what purpose I think could only help um, rather than hurt. Yeah, that is where shame and, and you know, places where organizations that call out, you know, the, that these or companies can do better might actually be successful. And that's where I'm really grateful for organizing, you know, for the work that you guys are doing in terms of trying to call these people out. Here's a question for Jeff and Larissa from Jen. What challenges did you face promoting a documentary about the potential harm of social media in an age when promotion is done almost entirely digitally? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, yeah, it's a good so question. Um, on, quite honestly, I, I didn't feel any real challenges there in that we were getting so much word of mouth and buzz on the film. I, I've stopped using social media. The film does have a social media presence really for educational purposes, but not for promotional purposes. That's not the main goal of the, so, of, uh, the social dilemmas um, uh, presence online. But the film was just getting so much natural organic buzz that people were promoting and people were talking about on social, but the conversations were happening in real life. And I think that's the biggest thing that we were seeing is that people were talking about it with their families and taking it home and friends were talking about it with each other. And so it became like old school viral, like real human to human conversation around uh, around the the themes and the issue. And so, I mean, it hit a it hit a zeitgeist with the launch of the film, and that's something I think we were really really thrilled about. Yeah, I would also add too that um, I think we also recognize that while Jeff and I individually are not on social media, 
the majority of a lot of other people, uh, I shouldn't say the rest of the world, but a lot of other people are. Um, and so I think we wanted to bring the conversation to where they were, but I think we also were hoping to call out some of the usage um, or design techniques that are trying to trick, trap, um, bring us back in um, so that people be can become more aware of those things. So um, it was usage, but intentional and perhaps with some design. Um, okay, Candice, another question from Isha. What would you say is the responsibility of child development experts in big tech companies like the one mentioned in the documentary? That's a good question. And I think though, that's where we're all trying to figure out where is the best lever because we know, you know, it, for adults to turn off their social media is one thing for young people to do it, it can be disastrous in terms of friendship groups. I mean, this is where young people are living. Um, and so trying to shut off those devices now um, might be a lost cause. So how, how do we make the spaces that they're in healthier, right? How do we make them, you know, align with what we want to see happen or be regulated in the ways that we traditionally could have done with kind of advertising or children's media. Um, and this is a whole new, whole new ball game. And for the, the issues that you identified in terms of the business model, this is not going to be an easy, I think there is a moral responsibility. I think there's an ethical imperative. I think this is um, especially true as we think internationally in terms of low and middle income countries of the potential benefits of information and um, education and all of the good that can be done and how those gaps can be closed. But what we see with the introduction of new technologies is that the rich get richer. And that is especially true in big tech, but that is also true for children using it. So children who are growing up in higher income households have parents that are tailor, tailoring and optimizing and protecting um, and doing these types of things that kind of optimizes tech for their child in a way that um, all children are not having access to. It's that mediation of technology to bring out the good and minimize the harm that all children do not have equal access to. So if there was a role for big tech to come in and develop algorithms that could help with that thorny, thorny issue, then um, I, would, I would say that would be a top priority. And we are starting to see more and more um, hardware manufacturers making devices where kids can still send text messages and call your parents and in an emergency, you're fine. And you can still message your friends, but they don't have the, the addictive technologies or the platforms of the capabilities for news and social media in that same way. So um, I think we are, we, we might see this new era of technology um, that really is trying to thread the needle for what works for kids. Um, how do you get the benefits without the, the consequences? Okay. And this is for Jeff and Larissa. What measures can be taken by content creators in the entertainment industry to promote positive youth interaction on social media? And I'll actually share my, this is an idea I had. I was actually approached to um, kick it off, please. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, it may be really stupid and I'm sure people have thought about it before, but everybody always talks about, you know, the internet's like driving a car. Um, what's the right metaphor, you know, so on and so forth. And, and so what about some kind of driver's license before, which would be some kind of education you have to take and this would be at the internet access this would be actually before you even get access to the internet um, around social norms and behaviors um, for adults too not just kids for everybody 
I think you're tapping into a really big question. And I think um, the, the heart of your question or the heart, heart of your thought there is that there is a gap in responsibility in the system. And there's a gap on the content creator side and who's putting stuff onto the internet. And there's a gap on the consumption side and how are we ingesting the, this information that we're seeing. Similar to your driver's license notion, I've heard people talk about um, applying FCC guidelines around content creation to internet content creators. So if you wanted to broadcast to a thousand people on a television station or a radio program, you need to get a license from the FCC to uphold certain standards for what you're going to broadcast out to thousands or tens of thousands or millions of people. And yet you can broadcast on the internet with no license, no fact checking, no review. You can say anything regardless of truth and millions of people can see it with huge consequences that might come from it with, oh, wait, wait, that was First Amendment free speech. I was allowed to say that falsehood, right? There, there's a huge gap in the system in how it exists right now. And, um, and I think there's a lot of opportunity for education, um, but a, a need for responsibility on both sides of that equation of who's making what type of content and how it's being released, and then how people are interpreting and ingesting that content as well. So um, yeah, I'll think about a driver's license more, but I, I love that concept. I love an internet, that. an internet driver's license. I really yeah. do. And I think, I think that like, it, what's so interesting about that is it allows for us to create a criteria in which we feel comfortable letting our kids um, or letting ourselves participate in an internet online world. And I think the, the danger is that then we don't see that that responsibility or that burden has then fallen on the user. Whereas just like with cigarettes, it was saying, oh, good luck quitting. That's on you. Um, as opposed to saying, actually, you've made this technology, you've designed it in a way that is not good for humans and humans are actually addicted to it, um, separate in this case, uh, not addicted to social media. But I think that, that burden of wanting to, as Jeff said, placing the, the ethical kind of blame on the individual as opposed to saying, actually, there's a responsibility for these tech companies to design it differently. Hi, listeners. We hope that you're enjoying this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us and share it with your friends. Your support is greatly appreciated. If you would like to view the video version of this episode, you could find it on our YouTube channel. Now back to the conversation. I actually thought of this because Tim Bernier-Lee said uh, the internet is a right. You know, I think a lot of people are saying that everybody, and I do believe at this point, it probably is true. You know, I mean, everyone should have access to it. We need it to get a vaccine. You know, we need it for everything. Um, yet at the same time, I've heard that the uh, cigarette um, metaphor is not the same. Driving is a better one um, metaphor because you actually can learn about it and you can get get um, information about it and then you're you're permitted into using it. So anyway, Candace, I'd love to know what you think. Oh, yeah. yeah. So so it's it's interesting because the on ramp to the online world and independence and social media all happens in this crazy spot in human development, which is pre adolescence. And so you know, if I were to pick, you know, I, I agree that all people should probably you know have some sort of basic um, kind of digital literacy or option to to do that. But I think we do have like this specific window where kids are first exploring online by themselves, right? Get, um, creating their own accounts, spending more independent time online um, in that early adolescent window where we could think about some kind of targeted 
whether that's around digital literacy, whether it's around offering supports, whether it's around pressuring social media companies, you know, to acknowledge the fact that they're there and that there are algorithms. You know, when I've had conversations in kind of the big tech space, um, they'll say, well, well, we have, uh, you know, YouTube kids. Well, yeah, you do, but all the kids are on YouTube or you have Messenger. Well, yeah, but you do, but all you just have to accept that they're all there. And then the algorithms you build to screen out negative content has to go to the floor of where your uh, where your audience lives, right? In terms of risk, um, and so I think you know thinking about kind of where is the space and there where people are most at risk. And I think you know for this next generation, it's that it's that window as they go into adolescence. Yeah, and common sense media I think has a digital citizenship. Um, curricula, which is helpful for them to get a sort of lay of the land um, and, and know what's out there and know what they should be aware of and not aware of. But I do think that that does put the onus on teachers and parents. And so, and we're all so busy. And, and so that's what I was sort of trying to think about. If the internet is a right, if you actually are given it, then when you sign up for your internet or your AT&T phone or whatever you do, is there some kind of onboarding for everybody? Um, this is what Anya Kamenet said, um, the science behind um, behind uh, the internet and it being incredibly harmful is not the same as the cigarette science. So, um, you know, which is what Dr. Rogers is saying here, you know, it's, it's so you can't, it's not exactly the same. Um, yeah, so I, think another... I think the driving is the better metaphor. Another example that we've used in the past is the, the plastic pollution issue, um, which is just so pervasive. And the solutions that are always given is like, you know, recycle your plastic or make sure you go to the grocery store and reuse your bags. And it's putting all mm -hmm. the onus on the individual as opposed to saying, wait, we need to shut off the plastic, um, single use plastic from the source. We need to stop using oil to create the plastic. So I think it is more of just um, what, what, regardless of what analogy you use, I think it's acknowledging like individuals can play a role and they need to play a role. And also we have to look and address this much larger burden that's caused by these companies and corporations that have an enormous power. If I may continue there, like the, the throwing another analogy in there, um, <laughs> the comparison that I normally think about is a climate change analogy, which in uh, the fossil fuel industry has a business model that is extremely profitable, yet consequential for society in different ways. And when you look at the consequences of fossil fuels, they showed up in society in countless different ways, whether we're talking about melting glaciers or ocean acidification or bleaching or plastics, or like there are all of these different things that came from this one business model that had this extract at all costs mindset. Um, for me, the frame here is less a matter of big tech overall or technology or screens or digital devices or time online. Those are not the big concerns in my mind. Um, the big concern in my mind is big social. And from my perspective, it is Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and I put Google in there as well. Um, but all of these platforms that have this time uh, against eyeballs business model where our time and attention is being sold for advertising. Um, TikTok but fits that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so let, let me add one more thought there, y'all, and love to hear your 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 thoughts on this. But 
within that same frame, this extractive business model, it has different impacts on teenagers than it has on adults versus politically engaged people. The, the algorithms are looking for different ways to engage each and every one of us, right? And so the, the teen mental health slice of the conversation, I look at that as like a slice of this, like, well, how are we getting rampant misinformation and polarization and a political polarization leading to things like January 6th that's happening in countless countries at the same time? Like for me, my, in, in exploring it in this fashion, and obviously there's there's still a need, as we're all saying, there's need for more and more research here. But political polarization is sort of the guaranteed outcome of personalized individual news feeds where anything can come in, everybody sees anything, whatever resonates, whatever sticks to your brain is what you're going to get shown more and more often. And what happens, I, I've been using this Galapagos analogy, it's as if we're all on our own individual Galapagos islands. And the more you engage with the feed, the faster evolution happens to you. And my Galapagos islands are going to drift this way and somebody else's they're in a different world and their, their island might be drifting in a different direction. And that's how speciation happens, right? That is like our ideas are becoming no longer compatible. So for me, the, the biggest concern that I have is um, the polarization of our ideas in society as a whole, whether we're talking about our country or any country on the planet. Um, and that, that's the thing that has me the most worried, which goes back to like the incentives and the way these technologies are designed with ML algorithms. I just want to ask you a quick question. This is really fascinating. And one of the things that I've struggled with in thinking about kind of what is the effect of the digital world on young people's mental health, and I think it applies to all the situation you're talking here, um, you know, is it a mirror, right? Is it reflecting back what we see, these deeply embedded inequalities, divisiveness? You know, maybe it's amplifying, you know, maybe it's kind of... Um, being used as a helpful tool in some places, but how much of this is a, you know, a story we tell about a cause, which is really underlying structural inequalities and divisiveness that have- And capitalism. <laughs> right, and, then, and I mean, it's a model social media might not money be- at all. Yeah. Because what I was gonna say is television, radio, all of these have advertising, all of these older medias, you can't yeah, sort of mm -hmm. disengage and say it's just this, even gaming, you know, and, and you were, you know, YouTube and TikTok, and, yeah. or Twitch and, you know, and gaming. So, anyway. but, but Yalda, um, if we, if we tune to channel whatever, and we see the commercial on TV or the bill, there's regulation. Board, not only is there regulation, not only is it going to filter human curation, but there's also a shared story. Like we all see the same billboard. We see the same ad in the newspaper. That's what's really different with the digital distribution platforms in that like I get my own personal filtered universe and it gets reinforced and I get my own like my decade plus of compound interest of like um, uh, affirmation bias. And I'm forgetting all the biases that, that factor in, but we see the same bias. Thing. But there's confirmation bias, but there's a separate one. There's um, fundamental there's attribution thing. error. No, I'll just um, throw in lots of biases. Exactly. But when you see it, um, when you see the same thing or similar things yeah. over and over and over and over, there's a reinforcement that happens. So even if it's a falsehood, you think it's true because you've seen it a dozen times. Yeah. And that's, that is a big part of the political polarization part of it. Um, yeah. Candace, to your point, uh, just one more point on, on yeah. the mirroring. Um, I, I think that's the response that all the social media companies like to say, like, we're just holding up a mirror to society and there's racism in society. And so that gets exacerbated. There's et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
uh, one of our subjects references it not as a mirror, but as a funhouse mirror that is distorting truth, that's distorting reality, that's distorting what is being um, rewarded based on these systems of, uh, of how the machine learning algorithms optimize, right? It's like if, if we're all attracted to see the car accident on the side of the road, the machine learning algorithms are saying, oh, car accidents are great. Let's have more car accidents. Let's put car accidents everywhere. So now we live in a world where car accidents are all we see every time we're going anywhere. Um, yeah. And that's not accurately representative of our society. So I, I think it's really tricky if, we, if we're if we building algorithms based on time and attention with no human, it's just like whatever works. That That is not bringing out it's certainly not bringing out the best in society. Um, and if it's then optimizing for bring, bringing out like the, the things that we're most vulnerable to, it, it tends down that own path. Um, I, I actually anyway, do agree that. with the algorithm conversation in a lot of ways. And um, yeah, I think one of the reasons if there is indeed, you know, I know we do, there is some evidence, we're not really sure why that this generation is more anxious possibly more lonely. Um, suicides have definitely been going up. I don't, you know, and some people want to blame social media. I don't think the evidence is there at all. But I do think one, one thing is that news feeds, kids get news feeds at, mm -hmm. you know, through social media in a way they never did. And those right. news feeds do, for all of us, exaggerate and make us feel that the world is more violent or more, you know, yeah. more school shootings. I mean, there's lots of things they're dealing with, climate change, school shoot, you know, all right, these things. Right. Yeah. But, okay, here's number my one other students, idea. Wait, just one, one thing to that, y'all, that like the number of youth that we have come across that believe that the earth is flat has just been so befuddling to me, right? It is like... How are students going through high school science classes, refuting, pushing back on their teachers and saying that the round earthers got to their teachers? And like, there's, there's such a lot a of deep, teachers like, that teach that in some places. Well, that might be the case too, right? But, but, um, there's but no, no requirement in most states for sex education to be based on fact. Wow. Science, That's, I mean. So, yeah. you know, yeah. the, the education system's another thing. Mm -hmm. um, well, okay, wait. Go ahead. Yeah, you were going to, say to Candace, uh, to your point about the mirror, I also think there's a piece of it too, which is that the algorithms are choosing based on what what it makes the most money, um, what they elevate or optimize for. Uh, so when we're looking at what's out there, what's on our newsfeed, um, and and as you were saying, the doom scrolling and stuff is true. We're also seeing only what quote, they decide that they want to show us. And I think that is not necessarily a mirror. It, it is more of the funhouse mirror. And I think one of our subjects says like freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom of reach. And I think that's really different. You used to be able to stand on your soapbox and say whatever you thought, whether it was a wild idea or a true idea. Um, but that didn't mean that the entire world was listening and you had the whole platform um, available to your as an audience. So I think that's a really fundamental difference. I, I, I'm glad I asked this question because this is a really, it's a good answer and it gets a good conversation. And I, I believe it too, that it's like an interaction. It isn't a mirror. It's not static. Um, one of the issues that always comes up though, is like the attribution of the cause. It's so seductive. It's so powerful. Like as a psychologist and a mom, I would want social media to be causing these things because I can turn it off. I can control it. You know, um, the same thing happens with child obesity. People are blaming child rising childhood obesity on kind of the digital world. Well, childhood obesity has been going up for decades and 
sedentary behaviors are going down. And that's related to like how we design the urban environment and how do we supervise children. And if we just shut off the devices, they won't magically go out and like change their diet, reduce the, you know, and, and so it's those kinds of things. I, I think when we're talking about the causal mirror versus kind of the causal driver of social media, that's absolutely the way the world probably works. But when we look for a solution, social media has become such a seductive and uh, it's a good enemy, right? Like tech companies are a good thing to hate and to want to shut down, um, you know, kind of in the in the common discourse around this. But that's and that's why I'm glad this larger conversation is being started about like, how would we solve these things we actually care about, you know, discrimination and the fall of democracy. If you could write legislation tomorrow, what would you what would you want to put into effect that would help uh, address the problems that you see? Yeah, so it would be regulation of big tech for sure. It would be breaking up the monopolies. It would be having kind of um, mandatory. So part of the thing that's been frustrating, I think, is that the level of engagement from technology companies has been to invite kind of experts or youth in for a roundtable or kind of a public discussion. But it hasn't um, been tied in a way to the business model or the profit margin that really leads to any kind of changes in the design. And so it, it has to, and you guys were exactly right, the business model has to change before we can get our idealistic notions of like what the world ought to look like um, and the incentives are just not aligned. Right, right. Yeah. I have an idea for the algorithms. Another idea. Yes. Because I just constantly have ideas. Um, <laughs> many of them bad, most of them. Um, what if you train the algorithms to every third or fourth story put in the exact opposite view? So you had mm-hmm. to, because we all do want like I don't want to like have a whole bunch of random stuff in my feed. You know, I do kind of want to have stuff that I'm interested in, but the problem is if that's all that I'm exposed to. Right. So why don't we train, why don't we make the algorithms throw in a different point of view? I've often thought that um, we should be able to control the dials on our algorithms. So how much friends versus family versus politics do I want? Do I want how much confirmation bias or not do I want? Do I want to just like say, no, filter out everything else or push me, right? But but if you had to- But then that's relying on on human nature to be perfect. And the mirror (laughs) means there will be some people that will say, just give me one point of view. (laughs) Right, but then they know that they are getting a bias point of view and maybe there's like a floor and a minimum standard around like you have to get so much like counter perspective to the articles that you're reading um but if you're you're consciously aware that you are getting a one-sided perspective which is not the case with most people on social media because they don't realize how filtered their own experiences are that that was honestly one of the most shocking things in the feedback from the film is that people were constantly saying to us I did not realize how filtered my experience was. Um, I've often been recommending to people, if there's some family member that you disagree with politically, do a reality swap and look at their social media feed and show them your like social that. media feed. And you'll have this experience of like, well, wait a second, like how are you seeing all of this <laughs> That's a good idea. Like, we have relevant, right? and, relatives in Texas. So yeah. Right, and it just, it gives the opportunity to reflect on what somebody else's is ingesting what they're consuming on a daily basis what type of information are they seeing all the time um and allows so Jeff, don't tell my kids this but i mess with their algorithms all the time <laughs> especially oh, really? when they're a little well awesome. yeah i would go in and i would change you know barbie to dora right you know i would just oh, look you know great. and just get like where are the females <laughs> but it's, right. it's true 
That's awesome. That's really funny. <laughs> well, I was going to say my daughter after watching The Social Dilemma. Okay, you know, I've been studying this for over, you know, almost 15 years, been talking to her. Digital citizenship worked for common sense, blah, blah, blah. She's like, oh my God, mom, did you know that they're feeding us information? <laughs> oh, yeah, that. No. Oh. So your film oh, got yes. <laughs> okay, great. That's, that's like, our audience. What? <laughs> it's, so your first really question here. <laughs> your first question who do we make it for we made it we for your it. daughter exactly. yeah. she's still on her phone though um yeah. okay we only have one more minute so maybe mm -hmm. instead of um well maybe i'll do a for all from d this is actually a good one for both of all of you what advice would you give to parents that are trying to manage social media with their children great great one candace Larissa, you can start, I was you start say Larissa. I'll I'm going to let Candace go last. <laughs> okay. You know, I think uh, especially given COVID and the digital world, uh, it's a challenging decision and it's different for every family. So I always caveat any answer that everybody does have to, you know, weigh their own personal life and what's, what's needed. Um, but uh, as we were making the film, we were learning about you know, um, some of the science behind it and recognizing it's not all there and a lot of it is correlational. Um, but one of the things they did say very strongly um, that I've heard from a number of parents as well as experts in the field um, that they recommend not having social media until after middle school, um, at least uh, after eighth grade, if not after 16, recognizing that can be really difficult for parents to follow given schools sometimes operate on social media. Um, so I think part of the advice is also just being aware of how this technology works and how your kids are using it, because I think that's kind of the first big step. And then deciding, you know, where are the factors uh, where you can see people falling down a rabbit hole, where time usage is getting out of control, things like that. Um, but but for me, I really do think it is awareness and recognizing that every family is different. Um, I often recommend that uh, families watch the film together and then also have their kids friends groups watch it together, have a shared conversation amongst all the families, all the parents and all the kids within a friend circle. And the big question in my mind is like, what do you want your relationship with technology to be? How can you get social connection and how do you hang out, whether in person or via signal or messaging apps, separate from the social media apps, but how do you get connection with your friends without the consequences of the manipulative algorithms? And one of the, the big things I would even pose, separate from any of the, um, uh, the, the individual or collective health consequences of the technology, if you just look at it from the perspective of your time over the course of your life, Right. I stopped using social media while making this film and I felt tangibly when I needed my creative energy to make this movie. And when that was in conflict with this tension around wanting to scroll and being pulled back. And if you look at your screen time reports and see how much time you're spending on social media on a daily basis and just do the math for like how much time a year over how many years you're going to live likely and like how many years of your life are being fed into the system and to give yourself the permission to claim that time back and think about how you could use that time productively how many thousands of books could you read how many you know great films could you watch like how could you really make intentional use of that time as opposed to just passively being a consumer. And that's basically what we are on these platforms. We're just passive consumers that have been monetized and turned into widgets. And, and that's where I would, I would encourage both families, parents, and kids to really consider, like, what, what do you want out of 
you know, many, many years of your life that would be spent on these platforms, but could be used really intentionally. So I'd probably give the advice, which is reflecting out here, which is don't count minutes and time. So parents often just see the kid in the screen and they don't ask anything beyond that. They just say, how much time has my kid been in front of the screen versus what are you doing online, right? In terms of, um, you know, the social media part actually is a small fraction of what kids do online. They're watching videos, they're communicating with friends, they're gaming, they're, do, they're doing kind of schoolwork. So sometimes it's not about the you know, actual screen. Um, and if parents can kind of move themselves past that focus on how much time their kids been online and just ask questions, figure it out what they're, you know, where, where they're spending their time. Um, and if there are those aspects on the social media that you're not comfortable, that's a value conversation of your family values. And that's fine, right? You can hold those, but just kind of negotiate them and make sure that they can be uh, shared and clearly articulated. Well, thank you all. I'm just going to say I agree. I'm going to pull one thing from each of yours. Um, Larissa, yes, absolutely. Every family is different and each family has to make their own sort of value judgment. Um, and Jeff, uh, I definitely think thinking about being intentional and really sort of having a shared conversation between the adults and the children together is in really important. And yeah, Candace, as you know, yeah, um, most of us researchers who study this say time is not as, as good of a metric that, as content, context, and the individual child, and also communication, how you communicate. So the four C's, um, that's a better thing to think about than, you know, time, because Two hours on Minecraft is a lot different than, you know, 20 minutes on Call of Duty, you know, just to give it a, a you know, example, although Call of Duty, I'm sure is, I'm not dissing Call of Duty. <laughs> okay, well, I want to thank you all. This was an incredible conversation. It was very spirited. It was very respectful. It was very interesting. I feel like we should, we came up with some good ideas. We want, I want to put this in front of policy people. <laughs> and, um, I, I hope that we can continue to have these kind of conversations and try to leverage all of the work that we're doing to help young people thrive and use technology in a way that helps the best that they can be and all of us be the best that we can be. That concludes this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. A very special thanks to our wonderful guests, Dr. Candace Odgers, Jeff Orlowski, and Larissa Rhodes our moderator, Dr. Yalda T. Wools. If you have a minute, rate and review us. And if you have any friends who you think would like the show, share it with them. If you're interested in learning more about our work, please visit us at scholarsandstorytellers.com and follow our social media accounts by searching Scholars and Storytellers. This podcast was produced by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers with special thanks to Jim Wools for creating the intro music, the UCLA Film School, Nira Liebenthal, Annie Myers and Jeremy Sheen. Goodbye for now and thank you for listening.